Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight, Creston's going to talk us through some of the actual real-world performance improvements that he's been making uh, so that we can see how this stuff works in the real world, not with just contrived examples. So we won't be building a blog tonight. Right? Well, I'm right. sure people will actually want to see... Uh, well... Unfortunately, I don't, I don't have stuff to show. I mostly have stuff to talk about. But Yeah, this isn't yeah. show and tell. It's tell and tell. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, before we get into that, how was your week? Oh, doing mostly Rails consulting stuff as opposed to DB stuff this week. Not that I couldn't have been doing DB stuff. It's just the Rails time demands. Of, like That's just most of what I was doing. Um, not even work so much on my own app, just dealing with uh, Rails and actually working on a new Rails 7 project. And some things that are a little frustrating by with using like Turbo, I'm discovering. Hmm. <clears throat> so like Rails 7 had, uh, they called RGS or UGS, whatever it is. It was a universal or unobtrusive JavaScript and Rails had some built-in stuff that it did some JavaScript for you automatically. And like, if you're going to delete, it let you throw up a, a JavaScript confirmation. Are you sure you want to delete this? And things like that. Well, moving to Turbo, a lot of how that's defined in the view has changed. So basically, if you're upgrading an existing application, you're going to have to change all the views oh, no. to the new standard. <laughs> And then even wor more worrisome is that because of how Turbo works, if you're opting to go with Turbo, and again, I've never used Turbo links or anything like that before my apps, but if you're going to go this route, now there are specific requirements in your controllers when you do a render or a, I don't know so much a redirect, definitely a render to set a status for that render. Like when you're doing a submission and it fails and normally you, like if you have a new action in a controller and you're gonna post information to it, normally if the, the there's some sort of validation failure, it renders new, renders the, the, the create action, sorry, I'll get to there in a second. The create action, create action renders a new the new templates for you to fill in the information again. Well, the problem is it wasn't working with Turbo and you actually have to put status um, in a symbol unprocessable entity, mm. or I think it's a 422 code. So you have to put that in there for it to work because of how Turbo works with Rails. Oh, wow. So basically, yeah. So basically I have to go through not only the views to change that part, but almost every controller to add that status to it. Now, maybe there's another way to get around it, but essentially one of the core Rails contributors I've seen posted in people making comments about this, and they said, yeah, you put a status in there. Oh. So I don't know. Oh, ouch. Oh, ouch. Yeah. That's, that's a little bit less than cool. I mean, maybe if people in the chat know a simpler way around this, but 
please. From what I've been able to tell, this is kind of like, oh, you know, this is the way. (laughs) Oh, no. Rails has spoken. Exactly. Oh, nice. Got an appropriate shirt on for that. Um, Yeah, wow. That's a bummer. Yeah, because even looking at, um, like I was playing around with some Rails 7 and created a scaffold. And the scaffold that's built, the create action, um, if it's not able to save the record, it returns status unprocessable entity for both the create and the update action. Hmm. Oh, boy. So that's apparently a requirement now. So. Ooh. Anyway, so anyway, I've been doing a lot of that work. So what's been up with you? Well, I'm just continuing kind of my week of a thousand paper cuts type thing. It's just been really busy. It's you know, there's no bad things. It's just lots of things. So I was actually working till about five minutes before we started the show. I was able to get off start OBS and hit the go button. Um, I was still doing stuff in Slack and talking to people about an issue we were having. Um, Oh my. So yeah, you know, there's just days like that where you just go and go and go. And, and honestly, there's a lot of days where I just kind of lose track of time and I'm like, why am I so hungry? Cause it's seven o'clock at night and I haven't eaten since 10 this morning. So (laughs) that could be why, what the heck? But, uh, yeah, it's, I, I did discover one cool thing. I mean, this isn't a big deal, but it was something that as long as I've been doing Ruby, I had, I had never seen this before there, the, the, there is a method called cover that you can use with a date range to see if a date is contained within a start and end date. Right. Um, and I had never seen that method before. And I was refactoring some code and I got to looking at things and I was like, you know, because this is less than or equal to this and this is greater than or equal to this. And it just, I was like, oh, I can't read this it's so hard to parse in my brain. And then I saw a cover and I was like, oh, this is so much better. How have I not seen this before? Because this isn't the first time I've done date comparison stuff. But, is it inclusive or exclusive or? I think it's inclusive and I don't believe that there's a switch you can do to make it exclusive. I think what you have to do is just move the dates out. I mean, I still always like the greater than, less than, equal to, because it's absolutely clear. Not not the way it was written when I was looking at it. I was like, what the hell are they trying to figure out here? When I finally parsed it all apart, I was like, oh, does this date range contain this date? And that was just way easier for me to think about. And I pushed that PR up, and <laughs> apparently I'm not the only one that hasn't seen that because the reviewers were like, I've never seen this before. Where'd you find that? I'm like, I hadn't either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but huzzah. Well, good. <laughs> so, you know, little wins. You celebrate the little wins. But, yeah, it's, you know, no major stuff, just lots of little things going on. 
Yeah. All right. So tell us about some performance improvements. How can we make performance improvements in our own apps as long as they're doing exactly the same thing you were doing? No. <laughs> well, the first the, the, the first step is get yourself a APM and application performance monitoring tool. Now, I had talked about this previously, but was using New Relic and using, I'll say in double quotes, because I wasn't really using it, I added on and for, I would mostly go to look at it to say, hey, what's my request per minute? What's my RPM periodically? That's mostly what I would use it for. Mm -hmm. Because I would look at like the slowest, and I did do, do it to, like most of my application does form building. And there were a couple of cases where some forms were particular, particularly slow. And this was like a year or two ago. And I looked into it and it was basically a, some views taking a really long time. So I started caching those and the performance improved. So ever since then, I haven't really used it to diagnose performance stuff. I'd look down periodically and I see what, and I would see what the slowest um, controllers or, or whatnot are, the actions of the controllers. And mostly it was waiting for third party calls. So I'm like, well, there's nothing I can really do about that. It is what it is, you know, so I never really thought about it. But I started getting some weird behavior and I still haven't nailed it down. I was hoping to nail down this random long period of time for processing a request. Like I'm looking at a page, I hit refresh, 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 and <clears throat> say one out of five times, one out of 10 times, it takes 10 times longer. Hmm. And don't really know why. I'm, I mean, I'm still needing to look into that. But because New Relic was saying, hey, we want you to get on a particular plan for doing this. I was like, all right, well, I got to either go ahead and probably start paying for New Relic or look for something else. So what I ended up choosing was Skylight to do uh, performance management. Now, the reason I chose, and I know you had talked about AppSignal, mm -hmm. and I still might look at that, but because I was already using Honey Badger and I was happy with it, I was like, all right, I'll just go with a performance-focused tool. So basically, I got it up and started running it for the project, you know, and it immediately pops up uh, your top um, controllers and actions by what they call an agony score. And it's kind of a combination of the frequency at which this particular action on a controller is called, as well as uh, how slow it is overall. So I started taking a look at it, and I was like, oh, I got some things I could here and plus it just you start looking at that and you know if it has three red uh, exclamation points for the agony score you're kind of like all right I, I should probably take a look at what's going on with this you know <laughs> and see see if i can improve it improve it so basically i started going through and just knocking different things down and making different optimizations so that's long wind long-winded story that's kind of what i'm going to talk about so probably the thing that is 
was the most obvious is that I had some n plus one queries. Now, these were, you know, just coming up and I was able to get some performance wins by doing that. Like one area that there were n plus one queries is like when we, when I query the uh, fields table or the fields model, some fields are actually, I call them compound fields. So like an address field is actually a compound field in the system, meaning it has an address line one, address line two, city, state, zip, country, you know, those mm -hmm. are all individual fields within the address compound field. And so pulling out individual label customizations, placeholder customizations, hint customizations, you know, that was an N plus one query. So I said, all right. So basically it helped me easily identify that. So basically I, that's the first improvement I looked at. But of course, everybody probably has N plus one queries somewhere at some point. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty good about identifying them and then not being there, but still some snuck through. So it definitely advocates, you know, it's an advocates having something like, I think like the bullet gem, if you have a Rails project is supposed to highlight those or use a tool like this and it will highlight them. Well, I, even with the bullet gem, I mean, yeah. I almost always have the bullet gem in there, but even with that, they'll sneak through. And without an APM, it's kind of hard to keep your thumb on that. Um, APMs really help with the with identifying those N plus one things, because sometimes because bullet sometimes doesn't have enough breadth of situation to find some of these things, and sometimes you you just you only find them because they're running across several people and uh, over a long period of time. Yeah. So. All right, so so that was the main area. Um, well, not the main area, the, the first area I'll mention. The second area I'll mention is actually multiple calls to the database. So to render one of my forms, given the amount of complexity that's been added to it, and you know, people want this feature and that feature and the other feature, to render a single form requires contacting up to 20 different tables. Like there's accounts table, form table, form group table, styles, layout, fields, specialized field, rules, you know, mm. visits, form visit, you know, there's with for analytics and metrics. So there's all these different tables that are accessed either to pull information or to insert information just by displaying a form. So the problem with multiple calls to the DB for that is that the round trip. So like, hey, I'm going to get the account. Hey, I'm going to get the form. Hey, I'm going to get the form group. Hey, I'm going to get the, you know. And you can, now a lot of these, where there's a clear parent-child relationship, you can bring them in as an includes because that also helps with n plus one queries. Mm -hmm. But still what I'm noticing is that it still takes the time for the call to be made and for the controller to do work on that. And 
I still have work I would need to do on this, but I'm noticing that if I can minimize the number of DB calls and try to pull back like the account, the form group form, and, you know, maybe the style and the layout, you know, they're just single rows from the respective table. But if you could join them in some way to pull the data back all at once from the database, I think that'll help. Particularly if you have your application server a little bit uh, separate from your database. Like if they're on the mm -hmm. same server, you're probably not gonna see this as much. But if you like are on AWS, like my product is, and you have an application in one availability zone, an application server in one availability zone, and your DB servers in another availability zone, having to cross that is gonna increase latency. Yeah, every, now, every like request probably, over the wire is going to take time. Yeah. Um, now, I and part of me wants to see what it's like, but I'm kind of like, do I want to invest the time in re-architecting things? But would I gain anything from staying in the same availability zone? But of course, of course if I do that, I would potentially lose some redundancy. Like keep the app servers in this all in the same availability zone as the database server. But if I did that, you know, I would lose some cross AZ redundancy in the application. Right. Hi, Katie, and how are you doing? Hope I said that right. Welcome to the show. Feel Welcome. free to ask questions if you have them. So, so that's one area. So if if there's ways you can batch calls to the DB, that would be ideal. Mm -hmm. So not again, but it's kind of, again, database call related because having to deal with that latency between the application server and the database server, if you're doing N plus one queries, that's going to be hitting you trying to do that or multiple calls to the DB, even if they're not N plus one queries, but you're contacting multiple tables and doing something with that work. If you can group them up as much as possible, that would be advantageous. Yeah. Now, uh, another section, and a lot of this is for me just writing the app and going and making it work and yay, it's running and no one's complaining. But when you look at it through an APM, it makes you say, huh, why am I doing it this way? I bet I could shave, you know, milliseconds by doing this. And what I'm describing is I have a lookup table for state and country, and I have a state and a country table. And every time that I was rendering the address field, it would call and read the state and the country table. But here's the thing. There's a common one for the whole app. It's not per account. Oh. There's not a state and country per form or even per address field. <laughs> Gee, you didn't want to store states and countries 800 different times? Well, but so I was like, <laughs> so I was like, wait a minute. Why don't you just make it a constant that stores an array of the data you need? <gasps> so, Brilliant! <laughs> so I did that. And now the address table is like, whoop because it has to make no database calls to pull down that extra information. 
So I was like, that was a super win. Yeah. You know, and it's obvious, but you know, at the time I'm just kind of like, well, just build and go, you know. I mean, in hindsight, it's obvious, but you know, when you've got all this stuff going on, that's where APMs are really helpful because they start getting you to zero in on these things and say, well, why the hell didn't I think of that before? Yeah, because, you know, because it's that's the thing is that it's like what I do in my uh, database performance practice. It's like I look at PG stat statements and, okay, what queries are taking the most time in the database? All right, 10% of your database work is taken up by this one query. What can we do to make that faster? <laughs> and then suddenly you have 10% performance and then you go to the next one and then the next one. Well, that's exactly what I was doing with this. I would say Skylight would say, this is the most agonizing controller action combination. I was like, all right, what can I do to fix it? And this was the case where I was looking at the address field, the rendering of it. Now it's going to take a little bit long to do anyway, because you know it has multiple fields in it. It's one of those compound fields, mm -hmm. but what can I do to optimize it further? And this was just something that I was like, Get a bloody constant and load it once at the when the app loads and, <laughs> and never have to call that those tables again. So, yay! Hey, and you're right. That that kind of stuff seems so obvious when you look back at it, but you know when you're down in the weeds, it's easy to miss stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the <clears throat> next section I looked at is that it was telling me some of my dashboards were a little slow. Now, I could understand that, but I was looking at a particular query that was taken, started taking much longer than I thought it should. And what it was doing is taking a sum of gifts and then summing all of the payments to those gifts and grouping them by month. So that's kind of the data that was presented. Now, you can't just do a left outer join to the payments table because that would duplicate all the amounts within the gift table. I mean, you may be able to do some distinct but it, in the gift table, but it doesn't really work that easily. And what I actually did was did a subquery of payments. So, the subquery was look at payments, group it by the gift ID, and then add up the amount, sum up the amount. So now you have essentially one gift row for the payment information. And then I joined, joined to that. But still, even that, that impl implementation was the one I had, and that one was, they were saying it was slow. So I was like, all right, how can I optimize this further? And I haven't used this that much, particularly in an app, but I actually used a lateral join. Hmm. Are you familiar with the lateral join? Uh, I think so. Okay. You're talking well, about like a union? That, no, it's 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 different. So there's you know there's left outer joins, inner joins, but and not a and it's not a union. But this what it does is it joins to the table. And then by a particular key, it adds up all the values in there. So it does what 
I was proposing it does like a left outer join, but it doesn't duplicate the rows. Oh. So it kind of does an inner for loop. If you can imagine the implementation, although SQL doesn't mention implementation, you just tell you tell you just tell it what you want to do, and it does it for you. Right. But it does like an inner for loop on that payments table to add everything up for the gift row. Yeah. So by doing a lateral join, I was able to 10x the performance of that query. Wow. So like, huzzah. Holy crap. Hey, we got a question. Katian wants to know, if you set a statement timeout on Postgres, is the connection terminated by the server or the client? Um, well, it, let's define server and client. If by server you mean your your Postgres server and client you mean your app server, then the timeout would be on the app server because it's waiting for a response, I think. But if you're talking about a web client to your app server, I think your app server is going to take care of, it's going to be doing the timeouts, assuming I'm under, understanding your question correctly. Well, in terms of Postgres, the statement timeout is actually server-based. So if you set it, it's the server that will be controlling that timeout, not the client, at least to my knowledge. Because there's a there is a specific parameter you can set with Postgres called statement underscore timeout. But well, uh, okay. So I guess it depends on which timeout you're talking about too. <laughs> well, there's, yeah. So yeah. there's a statement timeout that basically any statement that exceeds whatever timeout is set, it'll kill it. Right. So, so if you're talking about that statement timeout. That's, right, that's, that's on, the, server on the server side. Yeah. If you're talking about the request timeout to the server, then that would be on the app server as opposed to the DB server. <laughs> Saying client and server gets a little confusing sometimes when you talk about um, when you're thinking full stack because it depends on where you're sitting in the stack as to what is your client and what is your server. <laughs> If you're talking about like the PSQL client, that's kind of kind of how I'm speaking about it. So the PSQL client, which actually resides on the app server, <laughs> right? <laughs> that allows the app server to talk to the DB. So for, you know, that's what I was talking about. Statement timeout. Yeah. So it's the actual server that controls it. Well, and then if your DB server is on the same box as your app server, then they're the same server. So it, uh, yeah. <laughs> But it still uses a PSQL client to talk to itself. Right. I was being pedantic. <laughs> um, yeah, regarding a statement timeout, like a join that takes too long. So that, yeah, that would be DB server side, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the statement timeout, the server controls that. Yeah. If, if he's talking about that particular parameter. Right. All right, so so that was a win, the, the lateral join. The next improvement aren't really improvements, but it's just kind of things to watch out for and kind of what I'm thinking about in terms of the future. So <clears throat> one thing to watch out for that may be red herrings is cryptographic operations. So for example, I was looking at my sign-in and I was like, why is this taking so long? I was like so baffled. And then 
Skylight has a way to instrument, uh, do specific instrumentation of blocks or specific methods. Mm -hmm. And I was, was like, what is this? So I started drilling into it. And it's the buddy, it's the bloody call to bcrypt to bcrypt the password that's sent in to compare against the user. That's what was taking longer than I that what it was taking so long. Because I was like, this should be super fast. Why is this taking so long? Oh, it has to do the bcrypt process. So that's just something that will nuke your, you know, performance. Yeah, so you have to be careful of it. And bcrypt is pretty, is almost universally used. I wonder if there's ways to speed it up or if there are better alternatives to bcrypt. Well, it's a balance between, you know, if you have something that can be computed fast, it's not going to be as secure. <laughs> well, right. But and I they're just... always coming out with new methods. Right, because a year from now, the, the, the bcrypt stuff is going to be hacked and it will have to move on to, you know. Or, or they'll change how its implementation to, you know, yeah. to keep up with the, the hackers and the more powerful computers. But anyway, it's just saying, you know, watch out for that. You'll see that. Because also the other thing is, um, I may have to sneeze. One moment, please. Uh-oh. Excuse me. Sorry. Um, also, things like hash generation or maybe UUID generation, all that's, that's, that's pretty good. But, you know, like in Ruby, if you're calling secure random, some of those can take some processing time. So it's just be wary of that in your code if you see that. Because that can cause some red herrings to show up. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I'll mention is that, like originally mentioned caching, but caching is not necessarily a panacea because sometimes the call to the caching server is not as bad as just calling the database. So, you know, before you start, because actually that's, was going to be my first approach was caching the address field that was taking too long to render. I was like, well, why don't I just cache everything? But once I did the improvements with, like I was saying, the compound fields with the N plus one queries and this new implementation using constants, a constant for the state array and the country array, now their performance is really good. Right. So it's kind of like, not to right, mention I the fact not to cache. Yeah, not to mention the fact that choosing to cache means you also have to choose to manage cache and do a cache yeah, busting and, and invalidate. Yeah. So. And there's a reason they say that's one of the hardest things in programming. So. Yeah. I mean, caching is good in certain situations, <laughs> but there's a trade-off. Yeah. Now, so so that's kind of the review and the stuff that I've discovered and the things I've worked on. And of course, through this, I'll mention kind of like long-term what I'm thinking about is that what I think would give me the best performance is actually caching the whole form. And what I'm thinking about is basically 
to talk about an episode we talked about previously, Jamstack it. Mm -hmm. So basically, excuse me, cache the whole form and then any interactive elements on the form or things that may change based upon submissions that are happen happening rely on a JavaScript call to a separate API to render it. So basically the form will be cached. And if someone asks for the form, boom, it's super fast. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be a separate JavaScript API call to add, you know, little sprinkles of interactivity that are that are necessary. All the or pretties. Like, yeah. Or if like we're saying how many of a particular item are left in stock, that wouldn't that, you know, it would be cached at some maybe blank or something, but that JavaScript would then update what the actual amount is. Right. So I think long term that would deliver the best performance, but I would have a fair amount of engineering work to be able to get to that point. But I'm definitely thinking that as a potential path to really improve performance of where it is now. I wonder if there's ways you can kind of baby step your way into that, just kind of fall forward. Yeah, it's kind of like that's the nested doll catch, nested, nested doll catch, caching <laughs> that. Yeah, easy for me to say that DHH talked about. So basically right. you, you know, cache the individual fields and then those are cached within, you know, maybe at the form level or some, or we do have field groups. So maybe then the field group will be cached and then the form itself would be cached. So there, there's different ways to do that, but I would have to make note of all the different things that are interactive on the form like tracking how many items are left, you know, to make yeah. those separate JavaScript calls. Uh, you know, I, I know how important caching is, but every time somebody says that word, it just gives me shivers because I know what's what's on the back end of that. And it's just like, oh, there's, you got to think about so much stuff when you start caching, especially when you start doing like nested caching and stuff, which is really great. But holy crap, the cache busting and cache management is is gets can get so complicated if you're not careful. So that word has just given me like the willies every time I hear it now. And I mean, that's part of the reason that I was looking into Phoenix and Elixir. Because um, I thought, you know, that, because it's really the... Rails view rendering is slow as a dog. Um, now I haven't done an in-depth analysis of Phoenix and Elixir, its view rendering to see if it's any different, you know, that much improved, but nah, yeah. Could be. Well, that's good stuff. I mean, APMs are powerful and there's a number of them out there. Like you apparently are liking Skylight. Um, I, I love app signal and I've used several different ones that happens to be my current favorite, but, um, I haven't actually used skylight, but looking at the glossy brochures, it looks like it would be pretty good. Um, but yeah, APMs, yeah I mean, so, so far it's doing what I need. Yeah. So. It's um, letting me know what's slow. So there you go. Right. And that's one of the traps that I see a lot of developers get into is that they, 
they reason out and think that they can make assumptions about why things are slow. And a lot of times it turns out to be something that you really didn't expect it to be. And it's much easier to catch those and, and zero in on those with something like an APM. Um, so Yeah, and that, you know, using these tools are also important to avoid, you know, premature optimization because, right. you know, you could move faster without worrying too much about performance and just like throwing in some indexes that's like, all right, these should be good enough. You know, make sure your primary keys indexed and your foreign keys are indexed and just go with that for now, you know, to keep, you know, moving the development forward and do your best to do your queries to make sure they're not in plus ones or whatever, but then fall back on your performance management tool to then tell you explicitly these are the biggest problems and what you need to deal with. Right. You've got to, then you can zero in and say, okay, I do this to fix it. And then you go on to the next one and I do this to fix it. Right. Cause if you've got a page that takes five seconds to load and it's being called a thousand times a minute, that's much more important to refactor that than your two millisecond improvement on this thing that gets called once, you know? Yeah. Um, even though that two millisecond improvement is probably way more fun to, to work on. Uh, it's, it's just not the best business decision really. Um, but yeah. So, you know, if you're out there programming and you don't have an APM, I would highly recommend checking one out, um, get it, play with it. Um, at least kind of, you want one that does profiling. Um, and typically you want one that's kind of specializes in your language. Um, like Skylight and, and AppSignal both specialize in Ruby and Rails. So they're really good at profiling those things and showing you what you need to know. Um, but, you know, it's it, it's an extraordinarily helpful thing and it'll help you build momentum with making your stuff without having to worry about, oh gosh, what's what's the absolute most optimal way to write this? Let me keep refactoring until I've got it as optimized as it possibly can be before I ever release it. That's most of the time that's pointless. Let the APM tell you what you need to optimize and it'll save you a lot of time and frustration and headache. So, all right. Well, that was good stuff. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode tonight. Uh, that it's it's fun to kind of look at real world things and and talk about how how this stuff works in the real world. Uh, contrived examples are useful for explaining things sometimes, but it's also really good to see real world how this stuff works. Um, if you did enjoy this. Uh, and you're on YouTube, please mash that like button. Helps us out a whole lot and gives us warm fuzzies. Makes us feel real good about ourselves. Also, uh, subscribe so you know when we go online. Uh, if you're here and you did not enjoy this, I I don't know what to tell you. I'm not sure why you're still here this long if you didn't enjoy it. So, I mean, you, you do you, I guess. Uh, join us every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. for more Dev Talk. Uh, if you want to help us out, please tell your friends and bring them along, too. Um, next week, we are going to have a surprise topic. We've both been so busy that, uh, we, we were lucky we, we were able to do a show tonight. So we will, um, keep you apprised of what's coming. We'll have to think of one. 
Uh, if you have a topic that you'd like to see on the show, please leave it in the comments below. We will take a look at those. We're always up for suggestions. Um, if you have a guest that you would like to see on the show, please let us know who that is. And if you know how to get in touch with them, let us know. We will reach out. Um, vis uh, podcasts are available at all the places that podcasts live. Or you can come to our site, rubberduckdevshow.com, sign up for a newsletter, and find all of our podcasts and videos there. You can follow us on Twitter at, at DuckyDevShow, and that is where we will keep you apprised of what's going on on the next show. And uh, sometimes I get on there and talk about stupid things that I'm having to think about at work and, you know, stuff like that, and get on there and, and you know, gripe and complain and, and make stupid jokes, stupid dad jokes, because, you know, that's just how I am. Anyway. Dad. I know, right? Well, when you got three kids, you just learn... Learn to do all the dad jokes. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us, guys. And until next time, happy programming. Happy programming.